Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Uh-huh. How are you? I feel a bit congested, but uh, I'm okay. How are you? Did you take anything for that? Uh, I took a mucinex yesterday. Oh. What are, what are you implying? Yeah. Like a decongestant. Uh-huh. Oh, are you trying to say that I don't take care of myself? No, I'm asking if you took a decongestant. Oh, okay. In- you don't take care of yourself, but... <laughs> That's not what I was asking. <laughs> but you'll be able to get through this. Yep. Okay. Pretty sure I'll be fine. Uh, <clears throat> did you hear about the backlash against Jonathan Van Ness and Anthony whatever, Pierogi Paro- or whatever the hell his name is from Queer Eye? No. What what backlash? They were accused of queer baiting because they had posted some stuff on social media like pretending they're a couple. Like that they're partners now and they finally are together. And then shortly after, they they say that they have partnered in like pet food. Oh, God. So they're selling pet so food So it's marketing. Together. Okay. So it's marketing. People were very upset about it. Why? Saying it was queer baiting. And Why then, is that queer baiting? They're both queer. And and are they say unless they were saying we're strictly monogamous and then there's videos of them like fucking other people. <laughs> I don't like either of these people, but I do think it's ridiculous that they're being accused of queer baiting. And then Jonathan Van Ness made a post saying like people are so quick to like get worked up about this kind of stuff, but then they don't put that same energy into like talking about legislation against right. queer and trans people. And so I do agree with that. That being said, I do spend a lot of time talking about bullshit. So you know. He's a celebrity. People are going to talk about the things he does. But I do think it's kind of silly for people to be upset about these two because I feel like everything they do is just marketing and that's like bullshit. That's like, like getting upset about some ho- old Hollywood couple being like, I thought you were really married and happy. Right. Like, what does it matter to you? Who cares? Do we think anything these two are hawking is like... I mean, it's Quality. just all, yeah, it's, it's all fake and they're just trying to if sell any, shit. If anything, it's just annoying because they found some excuse to make some other content that I might have to possibly sit through and be I don't at. follow Anthony on anything, but I, I, don't, have, I don't either. I haven't looked at his, it's been probably over a year since I've looked at his social media, but you know, he of course gets paid to post things about different types of like culinary things. And it's like, do we really think that? These are organic posts. Right. And no. I, and like, I, these people are being paid. So... And I don't follow any of them, but I still feel like I get shanghaied into watching some kind of marketing or commercial for... I remember Van Ness selling some kind of hair product. He has his own hair care line called JVN, which is actually... I only know this because of research I do for my own work. Uh, his products are universally uh, poorly rated, like on Amazon <laughs> So I haven't used any of them, so I can't say. But moving on, Alec Baldwin just had his seventh kid. Jesus. Uh, that's a lot. Yeah, that's too much. I'd like to know why he's trying to make an army. Like, what, what is he preparing for? What, what's, her, what's her name? Hilaria? Hilaria. It's hilarious. But uh, I saw that he's trying, like, they're trying to sell his Hamptons home, which I guess is their primary residence. So I don't know. They need a bigger space with all them kids, or he needs the money, but... Well, not all seven, because uh, what Ireland is... The two, right? He has two from previous. Because there's had... Ireland and ha- Haley, right? He only had one with Kim. Who's Haley with? The one married to Justin Bieber. Yeah, who's... Isn't that his daughter? I think so, but who... No, I don't know. 
I don't know either, actually. But, but who do you have her with if not Kim? Oh, I don't know. But, yeah, that's a lot of kids. Okay, then I saw a few, like last <laughs> week, all this stuff about Nia Long. So come to find out, I didn't know that Nia Long was married. <laughs> and she has a 10-year-old kid. She's 51. Uh, she's married to a person who is the head coach of the Boston Celtics. Okay. Which is a basketball team. Yes. And I know that Larry Bird played for the Celtics. Okay. I know that much. But her husband's name is Emi Udoka. Okay. Anyway, he was having an affair with a staffer for the Boston Celtics. A woman. A woman. Okay. And he's been suspended for the 22-23 season. Whatever that means. And uh, what, 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 he was suspended for sleeping with the staff? I guess like inappropriate conduct and. Well, working, uh, I can. Perhaps yeah. like violating company policy. <clears throat> but of course, there were, you know, now I, I was reading that this staffer who has not been named assisted with a lot of travel stuff for the two of them and actually, apparently, Nia Long moved to Boston a few weeks ago and this woman, like, actually arranged for her to move out there and like by herself no with her husband oh, okay. but i i think people are trying to imply like that this person he had an affair with had sort of an intimate connection to the couple sure so you know i really like nia long yeah so i feel same. bad for her if she's you know because i'm sure this is stressful and embarrassing but the main thought i had reading about all of this is we don't know people's situations. Correct. Which is why I always get into trouble when I say that if I saw like like a like a friend or a family member, like their significant other, if they were out with someone else, I've often said that I wouldn't say anything. Because it's none of my business and I don't know people's arrangements and it could just cause embarrassment. Like in this situation, what if Nia Long doesn't give a shit if her husband is having sex with other women? But now that everyone knows and it's like all over the news and people are asking her about it and she has to make a statement, it's like, well, now this put me in an uncomfortable situation that I wasn't uncomfortable with in the first place. Right. But of course, I don't know anything about these people's relationships. It just made me think like, it's unfortunate that it got, because maybe, maybe they had an understanding, but certainly his behavior with uh, a coworker is not appropriate depending on his company policy. Yeah. So he fucked up there, but I just, you know, it's embarrassing. Plus there's a kid who's old enough to probably like read the news, right? Like a 10 year old. So that's, you know, unfortunate. Yeah. You had something about Sigourney soap dish. Well, she's doing press, uh, this week. I think she was on good morning America this morning, according to a text from my mother. But, uh, yeah, she gave an interview because, uh, you know, she's, she's got a new movie coming out with Kevin Klein. It's the third time they've been together. But they had other opportunities to start films together. And she revealed in, I think, an interview with People magazine that she turned down the Sally Fields role in Soap Dish, which I did not know. Oh, so that's a new tidbit. And she w that she said she regrets because, of course, Kevin Klein's not. And I do really like Soap Dish. But, uh, you know, she would... That would Came out in 91, so in 1990 she was pregnant or had her kid, her only child, that, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm assuming it had something to do with that. Because she also had to turn on The Handmaid's Tale, the Volker Schlondorf version, with Nata which went to Natasha Richardson. Mm. 
Interesting. Okay, so we watched episode seven of RuPaul's Secret Celebrity Drag Race. Yes. So there are four people left. Chick LaFay, who is the guy from Glee. Glee and Hacks. No. No. No, you're right. Chick LaFay is the guy from Glee in the wheelchair. Yes. Thirsty Von Trapp is the guy from Ugly Betty and Hacks. Yes. Chakra 7 is Tatiana Ali from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And then Poppy Love is AJ McLean from Backstreet Boys. Episode 7 was like Lady Gaga themed. So they each did a performance uh, of a Lady Gaga song. But before that, they did the Snatch Game. So Chakra 7 was Eartha Kitt. Chick Le was Celine Dion. Poppy Love did David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust. And Thirsty Von Trapp was Erica Jane, that lady from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Um... I'm surprised Chakra 7, they gave her such a positive critique because I thought her Eartha Kit was pretty bad. I did too. Because I think the easy, I mean, Eartha Kit is a really easy voice to do. Is it? I think so because it's just kind of sultry and growly. So even if you can't do the har, like you can still talk very slowly. You can kind of talk like a vampire. The, the seasons of S-E-X. Right. I, I feel like... Any, like, vocal tone, like someone like me with a super deep voice, someone with a high voice could, super deep, I'm not, you know, I have a deeper voice, and then someone with a higher pitch voice could do Eartha Kid. Mm-hmm. So how Tatiana Ali, who is an actual singer and actor, couldn't do it? I know, because... Seems really weird. I think, it, I think uh, we do, we often do Eartha Kid impressions in our house, so... Yeah, like, yeah, I'm so surprised that she did such a bad Eartha Kid. I am too. She looked... She looks good, but... Um, Her performance, she did uh, Paparazzi, I thought was excellent. God, I haven't listened to that song forever. I well, I'm not the biggest Lady Gaga fan. Same. Um, Chick LaFay Celine Dion was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Poppy Love is David Bowie. Uh, he did that thing on Snatch Game where like he'll just give his answer and then he doesn't say anything else. Yes, yeah. So I think he was, like, the mannerisms and whatever were fine, but he didn't talk much. Like, maybe he didn't know that he was supposed to add something to every answer. And then Thirsty Von Trapp was Erica Jane, and I thought he did really well. He, yeah, he did. Well, I have no, really, uh, idea of what that woman is or who or what she does or anything. Like, I've never listened to her speak, but yeah. I thought what he did was funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that if he would have been on a regular season of Drag Race, that performance would have... I don't know that it would be a winning performance, but he wouldn't. He would have been safe for yeah. sure. So anyway, he wins this uh, episode, and then they send Chick LaFay home. They lip sync her. Chick LaFay and uh, Poppy Love were in the bottom. And what did they lip sync to? Do you remember? Uh, oh, The Edge of Glory yes, by yes. Lady Gaga. Anyway, whatever. Who do you think will win? Because next episode is the finale. God, I don't... It either probably needs, AJ. I think all three would be worthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I have a feeling it might be Thirsty Von Trapp. Oh. Just because she's the most draggy and seems to like being in drag the most. Sure. But any of them could win. Okay, so we had some questions. Um, what does Nick think of the hours? Oh, I love the hours. That's a that's a favorite for sure. It's not in my top ten, but I I, I love it, and it's we have a separate place in our house for uh random favorites that i like and that <laughs> excuse me what we do they're right there 
Wait, all those movies underneath the TV are your random favorites? Yeah, they used to have. We used to have them hanging in those bracketed things. I didn't realize that's what those were. Yeah, you didn't ask me to. I didn't approve placement of those movies there. Well, you wouldn't let me rehang the brackets after we moved, so that's where they are. So I'm gonna find a way to do what I want to do. Well, (laughs) I didn't realize. So all of those movies in there are like your some of your favorites. Yeah. Oh, I had no clue that's what that was. I just thought you were accumulating more movies. No, those are the same. Them. No, those are the same that have been for years in the same. Okay. Okay, but the hours is part of that. Yep. I probably need to just make that a secret film because Joseph's never seen it. I've never seen it. No. Uh, yeah, fantastic. But the story is based on the book written by Michael Cunningham, which in turn is kind of a deconstruction and reintegration of uh, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway with with her own life. Another question we got asked a lot was why did we bleep the scores on a jazz man's blues? I didn't the know Tyler you, Perry you did that. I I bleeped them out because we both gave the film very low scores. I do not. I don't like the movie. Um, I but I feel like the scores don't match why I think. I think in this instance, the frustration with the film. It's, it's not a poorly like made film as far as the production. I think it looks nice. The acting is fine. It's just terrible, terrible writing by Tyler Perry. So I think our scores, to me, make sense thinking about how Tyler Perry is just delusional. Mm-hmm. And like everyone who thinks that what he does is great is like, no, this man has not elevated his filmmaking. Yes. And then <laughs> because he's so successful now, it's like he keeps getting to do stuff. It, which well, is fine. He should be able to if people like it. But I just think to say that, like a jazz man's blues, is an effective story about a relationship in the nineteen forties, like in Jim Crow era South between two black people, is kind of outrageous. Like it's just yes. not. It's just so watered down and chaotic. And you know, you know, kudos to him for trying something outside of his wheelhouse. Uh, but that doesn't give you a pass either. Right? Well, then I just think, like, I'm so frustrated. There are so many talented writers out there, particularly, I mean, there's such a large pool of talented people of color mm-hmm. that if he wanted to, he could find. Yeah. He could hold workshops and he could do things like that. He, he could, can afford it. What he, he, what he could afford to do, he should be doing, like... Sun like uh, screenwriting lab, right? That, for, that, for that's black what writers, I'm trying to say. like like the Sundance Lab. I mean, he can model it after any old thing because there you there there are a ton of uh, examples, but that are directed at uh, black people, people of color, uh, trans people. Like there there are ways to foster that, and he certainly has the money and capability to do so. And he doesn't even have to do anything; he can hire people to do all that. And he would, and he would just do nothing but collect money. I, I just, I'm so frustrated why he thinks he needs to tell these stories when there are so many people who need an opportunity. And then, you know, he likes to say that he gives all these people, you know, or people defend him, saying he's given all these people opportunities. He he has yes, which is it's, true. It's true, but he could. It's, but also, aren't there stories about like a lot of his productions are not union? So a lot of the people who work for that, I, I might be talking out of the side of my ass, but I feel like the last time I tried to read about this is that yes, he does employ all these people, but he's not part of a particular. There are certain unions he's not a part of, so people who work for him can't sort of transition into like mainstream Hollywood productions. If that's true, I think that's interesting I, I don't know if that's true but you know he is certainly a you know a community leader if you will and he has the resources he could 
it's okay he if he wants to be a filmmaker if that's his passion i mean his body of work doesn't speak to that being a passion right uh, but if you want of course of course continue to do that but at the same time like i, I, I don't know but even like the biggest directors and filmmakers they make other people's screenplays too it depends i think a lot of uh you know if you're if you're thinking hard school auteur theory there are a lot of people and i've even had other modern more contemporary directors tell me this like we i only do my own tyler perry's not an art i mean i shouldn't say that i think the only label that tyler perry you could attach to him like because he's not a good actor i don't think he's I, passable well but that's i mean again like passable yeah I, like I, i'm so tired of getting comments like we don't like any movies that's not my fault there are a lot of shitty movies out there that just get made and it's like well this person wanted to make a movie and they were able to raise $800,000 for whatever reason. Maybe they have famous parents or, 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 or they know a bunch of people or, or they have my, whatever. And then they make a movie and it's mediocre and it's like you don't get like a participation You badge. don't get an award like, for just <laughs> showing up. And it is hard. There is a respectful way to critique things. but uh... What I do think is that if you have the desire to be an artist of any sort, of course, your initial work may not be your best, but the, the 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 thing that I think we should expect is growth. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Because even if you look back at an artist's early work and maybe it's not the best, you can see that the you know the seeds were there, and that's what's fascinating about it. But with Tyler Perry, it's like how many films? Twenty three, twenty four, and like the quality is really. I mean, it's barely, I mean, the needle has budged very little. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> and that to me seems like there's something wrong. That's where this person seems stubborn and unwilling to relinquish any control. And it just seems odd as like a, a black man with so much power and money who is probably gay, just doesn't want to give other people a chance to shine yeah. like you said he could so easily start a workshop in a different production company where he just funnels all of these projects from like up-and-coming people of color and he, i feel like it'd be a cash cow because who else is doing that i mean ava duvernay lena waith i mean and they seem to have had a lot of success with that oh yeah, yeah. so i don't know why he wouldn't well because they he could be the king of that yes yes uh you know i think it it always kind of bothered me. Yes, he, he is an institution and, uh, you know, self-created, blah, blah, blah. So he, it, should he want to, his name should be uh, stamped on everything. But And it could be. But He could be like Quincy Jones. Yes, but, <laughs> but I mean like where it's overlording everything like a shadow. Yeah. Like I, I think it always kind of bothers me looking at the Why Did I Get Married poster where it's like, your name's over Janet. Like you gave her the first role she's done in a long time. Like that... I, I don't know. It just seems like due deference to her would would be what the goal should have been for that project. But anyway, that's a lot of time spent on that. So films released we didn't cover. Avatar was re released. Yeah, uh, we were invited to a press screening of that, but we just had a movie night several. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have wanted to watch uh, yeah. it again. <laughs> Avatar looks amazing. That story's and that acting is I don't know. It's so funny because I was watching. Um, oh, sorry. Like uh, backing up a second, I, I meant to in your conversation about showing up and participation award. Greg, I saw a headline about Greg Matola saying like, "What a miracle it was that he got that Fletch movie made with John Hamm." <laughs> and just like you know, it makes me feel bad because I really didn't like that film. But 
anyway. Uh, yeah, Avatar re-released, which I think is uh, was made a lot of money this weekend again. Moving on, something called Five Twenty Five Seventy Seven. Uh, yes, directed by Patrick Reed Johnson, which I guess is a semi-autobiographical film. In the nineties, uh, he had a slew of fil- titles you might remember, like Baby's Day Out or Angus. Uh, or Spaced Invaders was his debut, which I remember liking that film as a kid. Next, Athena. Uh, Netflix, it uh, put it in the theater first. The new film from Ramon Gavras, uh, that is now streaming on Netflix, which is worth a watch. I, I gave it kind of a pass out of Venice, but uh, has some interest. it has some pretty good intense action sequences. Bandit. Uh, I showed you the poster for this. <laughs> It's directed by somebody named Alan Ungar, but with Alicia Cuthbert, Josh Duhamel, and Mel Gibson. Looks like a straight-to-bargain-basement kind of film, but... Catherine Called Birdie. Lena Dunham has a second film that's premiering this year after Sharp Stick out of Sundance, which I really didn't like. Um, she, I remember my mother had this book about a young girl in medieval England uh, by Karen Cushman. I skipped a press screening before TIFF on that because our... Street was being, what was, uh, it was oh happening. repaved. Yeah, I couldn't get out of the driveway. Otherwise, I w- I would have seen this film weeks ago. But oh, I didn't realize you got stuck that day. Mm-hmm. Next, something called Control. Uh, this looks like a lo-fi sci-fi film being released in theaters, directed by someone named James Mark, uh, starring a, a young woman whose name I can't remember from Star Trek Discoveries or something. On the come up. I was still hoping we would make time for this. Sanaa Lathan directed a film. I watched that trailer. You don't think it looks good? We have a screener. I It, it didn't pique my interest at all. Oh, so we're not... I guess we won't be reviewing that. Well, it's uh, already out. Yeah, but on Friday. Uh, and then you want to make a video? I don't know. We could put it on and see. I, I, sh- I find her interesting. Sanaa, yeah. Yeah. Little, The little biter that she is. I, I don't dislike her at all. I just... The the stories seem kind of like... Well, know. it's just funny. In my mind, like as a kid, I knew her because she was Blade's mom, right? In the first movie. Well, her dad is a... But, I, but it's funny. I didn't know her. I knew her for years until I realized like she's the daughter of this much more famous person. Yes. Next, Railway Children. Um, we got a ton of emails about this too. And we did? One look at the poster and I was like, oh no, I'm not reviewing this. Oh, let me look at this. Um, Morgan Matthews directs, but it does star Jenny Gutter, who is also a hero for my youth for her roles in things like Equus and An American Werewolf in London and Logan's Run. Uh, she was, they used to call her England's Rose. Oh God, this poster. <laughs> I know, I saw that and I'm like, I can't watch that. Okay, moving on. Something called Sydney. Something the Sydney Poitier documentary. Oh, by Oprah. Uh, it's directed by Reginald Hudlin, who will come up later in this conversation. But uh, I would, I would, I would watch that. Probably in my leisure, though. I would too. Yeah. Young Plato. Uh, that's a documentary um, directed by Declan McGrath and Nisa Nichanian. Uh, something about post-conflict Belfast, and I think focusing on a community there. The Enforcer. Um, if I had infinite time, I probably would have watched this, but, uh, Richard Hughes, who I'm not familiar with, direct this, directs this, it looks like a straight to, again, DVD type of film starring Antonio Banderas and Kate Bosworth. 
Lastly, you wrote something like Declan McGrath. And Dex, I just said that. Those were the directors of oh. Young Plato. Okay. Oh, it's all out of sequence. Yeah. Okay, anyway, moving on to things we watch for fun. Something called Rachel Rachel. Uh, Paul Newman's directorial debut from 1968, starring his wife, Joanne Woodward, who I believe was Oscar nominated for this, uh, and their daughter, uh, whose name I'm forgetting, is the young plays the childhood version of her mother's character in this, but... Uh, it's about a, a school, a virginal school teacher living with her mother who kind of comes into her own with her relationship. Um, it's a very, it feels like a well done first film. I much prefer uh, the film they did afterwards as director star, uh, The Effect of Mary, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, uh, which was a play I liked as a kid by Paul Zindel. I might make you watch that someday. That's a really good make film. Make me watch it. Oh, it's good. Uh, so I like that more than Rachel Rachel which I've wanted to see for years. Warner Brothers just recently put it out on Blu-ray. Um, Next, House Party. I've never seen House Party. Reginald Hudlin's uh, directorial debut. 1990. Which spawned three sequels. Starring Kid and Play, the rap duo. Yes. Plus people like uh, Tisha Campbell, yeah. Martin Lawrence. Uh, Tisha Campbell is very cute and sweet. I The, the plot is very simple. Yes. And so it feels a little long because it all takes place like in a night, like in a day and night. And it feels so much longer than that. <laughs> because uh, everything culminates with this house party, then it ends, and it seems like it's really late. And I was kind of already <laughs> tired of what I was watching. And then they're still like, oh, we got to do some more stuff after the party. <laughs> uh, right. And Oh, my God. But it's like... So Robin Harris died shortly after filming this. Robin Harris, who many people... He was a prolific stand-up comedian. And of course, many people know him from Baby's Kids. But, yes. Um, or having created and voiced in Baby's Kids. But he plays Kid's dad. And he's only... How old is he in the he, movie? He must have been probably 35 because he died at 36. He looks, I mean, he doesn't look well. He looks, yeah, ragged. Yeah, he looks ragged. But I really like that characterization in the film because he's a single dad who's doing the best he can. And I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of films with this demographic or this in this socioeconomic class, the dads always come across being very cold and trying to like beat masculinity into their sons. And I like this portrayal where it's just like he's doing the best he can. He does love his son. He seems sensitive to him. Yeah. So, so I did appreciate that. Well, because in the story, he recently lost his mother, like only a month before, I think, or something. Mm, yeah, that's right. So, I I would recommend it, and it definitely I've seen all the House Party movies, but it would I would definitely rewatch them. It's well, we you watched it on Amazon Prime. I don't remember now, but uh, something like that. It, no, it, not a. It was readily available. Um. Uh, there's a remake coming out this year. Oh, and that's what prompted us to watch this. Yeah, I was like, let me watch this now before. Okay, um, moving on. Something called The Devil to Pay. Did I watch that? No, but we you were here when I was selecting it. Uh, I watched it prior to Till because uh, it stars Danielle Deadweiler. Oh, it, I remember because the title's funny to me. Like, yeah. the, like I don't understand what The Devil to Pay means. Uh... The devil... The, like, as a statement, what does that mean? The devil to pay? I know it is awkward because uh, I guess I took that as you, you you need to pay the devil to get your freedom, which is kind of 
my interpretation based on that's an the awkward plot. title but anyway about this movie uh she was good in it but it's a very uh this the situation where her no good baby daddy basically has been killed on a working for this terrible horrible white woman in the appalachias uh she has to continue whatever job he was doing uh to pay this woman back or they will kill her child uh so it, it very once that scenario is set up for us, it feels very familiar. Uh, but she's good in it. Okay. Uh, and I was for because my only I wanted to see that before Till because I'd only seen her in The Heart of They Fall where she plays Cuffy. Cuffy. Where she is, uh, I I think that the female characters in that film are a lot more interesting than the men. But okay. So and then since you were searching the devil to pay, you were searching movies with the devil in the title. Uh-huh. So we ended up finding. I, I think it was the poster that caught our attention. No, it was those Kim Richards. Oh, Kim Richards. So we watched Devil Dog, The Hound from Hell, a nineteen seventy eight TV film, um, which stars Richard Crenna and Yvette Mimieu. Uh, and then Kim Richards, and then the and then the boy who she's in Witch Mountain with. Yes, uh, that played her brother. But it's about this dog that gets possessed by the devil, and then this brother and sister get the dog, and then the dog makes them do bad things. Everybody except the dad. The dad is somehow able to fight the dog. The, like, the, the white male patriarchal figure is able to overcome. But it, it while we were watching it, it's funny. The first half is much more fun than the second, which is very routine. It does drag, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but they have a housekeeper, of course, named Maria. And of course, Maria. In every movie like this, the you know, like the Latina domestic worker feels like there's like a demonic spirit and starts doing the rosary. And yeah. <laughs> but it's like, how is it that other animals and uh, the people of color is how a lot of these old films uh, did? They can all sense something's wrong. They can sense the <laughs> devil, but these stupid white suburbans are just like, oh, let's come it's to my a, house. It's familiar, but um, it was readily available. I forget which platform, but I would, it, it's fun to watch. Tubi. Oh, it was on, it was Tubi. on Tubi because yeah. that's where I found Devil to Pay. Next, World War Three. Uh, this was a Venice title. I think it won a prize out of the Horizon sub uh, program that I'd missed that I caught up with uh, an Iranian film. Really good. I was really impressed uh, with World War Three, directed by Human Saidi. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It's about. It's basically a film about filmmaking, but has this really great kind of anguishing sensibility. It was. I, I really liked it. So in our live review of Cape Fear, someone mentioned the film's Terrifier and Terrifier 2. Mm-hmm. And I, for some reason, had watched a couple of interviews. So Terrifier is that horror film, slasher film, that has that creepy clown with the black and white makeup. Okay. And that character is called Art the Clown. The gentleman playing Art the Clown is named David Howard Thornton. And like... I, it's been a while. It was back in our last house. I remember sitting in our bedroom watching interviews with him because okay. I was surprised that this gentleman, David Howard Thornton, is like a very lovely man and then like very sweet, but then he plays this like awful, horrific character. So anyway, because of the review, it inspired me to watch Terrifier. So I watched it this morning. It's a very low-budget slasher film and it did make me excited to watch Part two, which comes out uh, in two weeks. I'm assuming we'll have access to a screener. It just premiered at Fantas- Fantasia. Fantasia, yeah. One of those. But um, yeah, the, the the Terrifier is not the best movie. It's very low budget. But Art the Clown is creepy as hell. 
And I could totally see someone remaking. There's a scene in particular, it's towards the opening, where these two young ladies, it's Halloween, I believe, they're in costume, they stop at like a pizza shop, and Art the Clown is sitting in the restaurant sort of staring at them and being creepy. I thought that was a really strong, like that vibe with that character. I could see someone remaking it. Apparent In this film, in Terrifier, he... He dies, but then he comes back to life at the end. So then I was reading Terrifier 2 as him being like re reanimated by some evil entity. That confused me a little bit because I'm sure people who are fans of this this character will fact check me. But I understood he was still alive at the end of the first movie. So I don't know why he needed to be reanimated. But anyway, lastly, we watched... Um, are you going to talk about Conforma? I don't see that on here. Well, that because you watch that mostly, so what is it called? Conforma. Conf oh my goodness, Conforma. Conforma. Oh, we need to talk about Conforma. <clears throat> I didn't have that on my list. I'm glad you uh, mentioned it. So on Tubi, I saw this. Um, t there's there's a lot of like gay black shit on Tube um, Tubi. So I watched a series called Conforma. Well, the first two seasons. There are three seasons available. Only the first two are on Tubi. And I don't have anything to say except the main character is played by Anthony Bond. He's also like the writer-director. Mm -hmm. Wow. It is... Um, <laughs> he... Uh... <laughs> it's about this... It's basically about... He's the central character. And in every season, we have new peripheral characters. But he's navigating like polyamorous relationships and open relationships and i mean you watched a lot of it with me what's your impression of <laughs> well you know steve mcqueen uh, famously said we do need you know bad black movies and black content too <laughs> um and this felt very this felt very much like <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> what oh he god can, are you dying what he can do what this person this who's very talented can do without kind of a lot of resources. I enjoyed it. It's terrible, but it's so bad it's good. I mean, season one, one of the main characters works at a pet store, and they're not in a pet store. Not at all. Clearly, they're shooting wherever they could find space. So it's being shot in like a hair salon. Yes. <laughs> and all they do to make it seem like a pet store is they have this like Rubbermaid bin filled with like dog clothes. And they're just constantly... They keep sorting. They yes. keep sorting through this Rubbermaid bin of dog clothes, but they're clearly in like a hair salon. There is a character named Keisha, played by Alexandria McGoffey or McGaughy. I think that lady, like her... She's a talented comedy actor. The writing's not the best. She gets but, some good lines. But she gets some but... really fun... I would say it's worth checking out just because of her. And the episodes are very short. Um, you know, with two, we have to watch commercials. They so. are, but the, but the main guy... Uh... Everybody wants to sleep. <laughs> well, it's hilarious because the main guy, everyone, like he's written it so that everyone wants to sleep with him, which is so unbelievable because he's not the most appealing person in the series. <laughs> well, they make comments too, like somebody, there's somebody that's this, this, the very abusive boyfriend's like, I saw that guy you're sleeping with. He was that hot black guy at the bar with a nice body. I'm like, what? I know. When they describe him, it's like, I don't know. Like, are we in one of those, like, dimensions where everyone sees something different from us? I was like, hold up. Did we see that man? I don't... Anyway, Conframa. C-O-N-F-R-A-M-A. It's worth watching just for how bad it's, it is. It's outrageous. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like a notch below something like Noah's Ark. 
Okay, lastly, we need to talk about, I might even name this podcast episode, uh, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer Story. We, we're still going to review the secret movie, but we watched all 10 episodes. Yes. Um, it's on Netflix. It stars Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, I have read a lot about Jeffrey. I've read two books about Jeffrey Dahmer. This was in college. Um, of course, we studied him in like an abnormal psych class. Of course, I've seen um, the two main movies made about him with uh, Jer- Jeremy Renier and uh, well, <laughs> Jeremy Renier is different. Jeremy, I know. And uh, the other one, my friend Dahmer, but with uh, Anne Hage, who is now no longer with us. Yeah. But initial thoughts about Monster: The Jeffrey Dahmer Story. Uh, I thought it was difficult to sit through and, and not because of quality or any, like, I think that it was very well made and it's quite compelling, but it was also very disturbing. And he, you know, like what Ryan Murphy does, uh, uh, you know, getting it like, like he did with, uh, Andrew Cunan and, uh, or Joan Crawford even is, is getting inside the mind of this person to kind of, see why they became what they became and you you know it's creepy that the earlier episodes do build some kind of empathy for this person but and i think that's where the conflict uh, comes from but i think that's a testament to the writing because yeah we shouldn't feel compassion towards this like serial killer but there are many moments where i felt very like confused in my own mind, like, why do I feel an affection towards him? And why do I feel bad for him? Um, when clearly he's a monster, as people like to say. But it, it, it becomes more, especially because it, it goes into kind of, you know, gruesome detail with what some of the things he did. Uh, well, it, it it made me feel anger and more, like rather than pity for him because he is very pitiful as well. Yeah, I think since we spent so much time watching it and there have been so many requests to talk about it, I thought maybe I was going to go through each episode quickly and talk about some key things and then also things that are true and things that are not true. So episode one, um, we're introduced to a woman named Glenda Cleveland, who is a real person. In the movie, they depict Glenda Cleveland played by Niecy Nash. Who straight out the gate, I think Niecy Nash needs to be nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, she's great. Or Golden Globe. Yeah. Whatever awards she can snatch, she deserves them. She's so great as Glenda Cleveland. The series portrays her as the neighbor of Jeffrey Dahmer. So Jeffrey Dahmer, when he lived in Milwaukee, he lived in the Oxford Apartments. And that's where he did a lot of his killing. The series has Glenda living next door to him. Where she was able to hear all the killings and smell all the rotting meat. But in reality, that's not true. Glenda lived across the street or in the apartment building next to Dahmer. And the show is sort of um, combining her with another woman named Pamela Bass who lived in the building. And that woman was the one who recounted him giving people sandwiches, which we'll get to later. Oh, God. Yeah. So, so there's that. Um. Another thing that I was reading that the series does differently is we get a lot of news stories within the series that, based on people's research, those stories were not true. Like, like for some reason, they chose to do random stories about a kid being hit by a car. Or there was a fire at this. These things apparently didn't happen. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, 
Dahmer was known to show uh, or be obsessed with the film The Exorcist, and he did... The Exorcist 3, um, wasn't it? There's, I was reading that there's... The the gentleman who escaped, that Tracy Edwards man, he said it was The Exorcist, but then in an interview, Jeffrey Dahmer said Exorcist 3. But, um, so that was interesting, but Dahmer also said that he really liked Return of the Jedi. Oh, God. <laughs> so there's that. Um... So, episode two, we're introduced to the 114... So, a big point of contention after Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested and all of his... Like, all of the discoveries that were made, the community was very upset for two reasons. One, many of his victims were black. Like, more than half were black. Like, three quarters. Well... They, she, they said 10 out of 17 in right. the series. So, the majority are black. But... One of them was a 14-year-old Laotian boy who was able to escape. And then a neighbor uh, tried to tell people or the police that, like, you need to not, like, you need to do something. This boy's underage. But the police said that they, you know, felt comfortable giving the boy back to Dahmer because they thought the boy was an adult. And was drunk. And was drunk when really... Dahmer had attempted to perform a lobotomy on him. Mm -hmm. So he had drilled into that boy's brain and poured, and poured diluted acid in there. <clears throat> and he looked like a little boy. Mm -hmm. Like looking at the pictures of him. But the police, you know, we have the actual 911 conversations. And the police are like, it was just a boyfriend-boyfriend thing. He's an adult. We verified it. And now I need to go get deloused. Yeah, and then on the police scanner, uh, they have recording of the cops saying, like, they need to be de-loused. Yes, they clearly don't want to deal with... They just don't want to deal yeah. with gay people. So that that's probably one of the most upsetting things about this Jeffrey Dahmer case is that someone... Like, the police gave back a victim. Yep. And then that kid was killed. That's very upsetting. And then, the, then they were suspended with pay and then reinstated to the force. The series uh, depicts Dahmer stealing a mannequin from a department store and then sleeping with it at his grandmother's house. And apparently that is true that he did, which is so creepy. Yeah. And well, then grandma got rid of it. Dahmer was convicted of uh, like molesting a 14 year old boy who was the brother of the 14 year old Asian boy who was given back and he ultimately killed. So a lot of time is spent with this family because they went through I mean, can you imagine this serial killer molested one of my sons, then later killed another of my sons who was give, who had the opportunity to do so after the police gave my son back to him. And then they were, this is getting later on the series, but that family was harassed by the police and other people. It's, I mean, I can't even imagine. So um, episode three, we get a scene where Jeffrey Dahmer has killed his first, it was the hitchhiker, and he had chopped this boy up and put him in some trash bags in the back of his car, and the police stop him. Yep, because he's drunk driving. And they notice the bags, and Dahmer just tells them, like, oh, I was going to go dump some trash. And so this is true. Yeah. It's just so crazy. You know, how would they have known? And, you know. No, but you get the system of. These like, like white cops and later this white judge who are like, oh, it would be a pity to ruin this young white man's life. So I'm going to give you a pass. Yeah. 
the well oh well that's that's coming up later but yeah that's really upsetting but in episode three we also see something that isn't true to the reality which is in the series we see Dahmer attempt to assault a jogger and then the jogger runs away but in reality Dahmer said that he had become fixated on this jogger this boy or this young man who was shirtless and hairless and he just became like sexually fixated on him and he wanted to do something with him but he never did yeah so that's an interesting adjustment um then we also see that Dahmer posed for the yearbook like he um what do you what do you call it when you sneak into he photobombed he photobombed the honor society photo and then they caught it before the books were distributed so they blacked out his face <laughs> so in his yearbook the photo of the honor society that he photobombed you can see that his face has been blacked out which is creepy yeah because of course thinking we can talk about it at the end um episode four we see that Dahmer worked at a blood bank and there's a scene where a young a handsome young man comes in to donate blood and clearly Dahmer is like fixated on him and the series shows that Dahmer takes the blood that man donated and uh, takes it home and drinks it that is not something Dahmer did he did say Dahmer did admit to like um that he tried like vials of blood Ugh. and that but that he uh, only did it at work and that he didn't like it oh okay so the fact that they're showing him bringing home bags of blood and like drinking it like american psycho style is not accurate um he was we also in the series see that he Dahmer was arrested for indecent exposure at a carnival and the series is making it seem like he was like fantasizing about some man he had killed and then started masturbating in the middle of this uh, carnival. We also find out, which was interesting, we get several scenes of Jeffrey taking victims uh, or yeah, victims to a bathhouse. And then he ultimately gets kicked out of all the bathhouses in Wisconsin uh, or Milwaukee because he was drugging these young men and then leaving them. None of them died, but he would drug them and leave. But um, we could tell that one that some of those scenes were shot at, at Flex, I think Flex, which is a bathhouse in Los Angeles, which is not very far from our house. But so that was kind of cool yeah. to see that. Um, so episode five, um, there is the scene with. The young man from Pose, who you recognize. Dylan Burnside, yeah. Yes. So in episode five, we see this the the the, the man Ron Flowers. Yep. Who was able to get away. And the way the series depicts it is that Jeffrey Dahmer's grandmother walks in on Jeffrey like having just drugged this man and about to do something with him. And the grandma says, like, no. I'm going to sit here all night long and make sure he's fine. And then the next day we're going to take him home. So then we see them put him on the bus and then the boy goes home and then the, or the, the man goes to the police, blah, blah, blah. That's not what actually happened. Ron Flowers was a heavy man. He was like 250 pounds. Oh, so not this handsome young man. So he wasn't person. a handsome, thin man we see. Well, not implying that he's not handsome at 250 because I'm closer to 250 than 150. But 
Jeffrey explained that Ron Flowers, he didn't kill him because he thought he was too big to move around. Oh, God. So that's a very big adjustment to reality. And by all accounts, that grandmother never even saw that guy. Um, then that year that he spent in the House of Corrections, the, the series shows that um, it seems more like a jail but it wasn't a jail. It was like a door. Like he was allowed to. This was when he got convicted of like molesting that boy. It was basically like he could leave all day and go to work. But at night he'd have to sleep in this like dormitory style. Oh, like to okay. watch him. Which gets us to that judge you mentioned. Judge William Gardner. It was so frustrating watching this depiction because... You hear this judge say, like, oh, a, a young man like you doesn't deserve to be in the criminal justice system. Well, you remind me of my nephew or something. So it's like, oh, because you're white, yes. I think. Yep. It, first of all, that was infuriating. And then we we hear him, like, attempting to listen to the parents of the Laotian boy, who the dad was having problems speaking English. So we hear the judge... Um, kind of be dismissive of him yes. and say can someone else speak for you and then, then he gives jeffrey like the most minimal sentence possible that was very frustrating you know in hindsight when you see how the criminal how law enforcement failed these families how this judge failed these families it's really crazy i think the best episode is episode six i agree that was very hard to sit through it's though. called silence it's about tony hughes who was a, a deaf gentleman who Dahmer sparked a relationship with first and for foremost the actor playing Je uh the actor playing tony hughes tony hughes's mom is karen oh, okay. Molina white who i know as charmaine brown from the cosby show she was also on a different world i think she also earns she deserves some kind of award because i was so moved by her performance mm -hmm. I just think that episode is so amazing. It's good. It was directed by Paris Barclay, who directed lots and lots of television, but uh, Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood, oh, of course. Well, good job. Yeah. It, was, it was so moving and so hard to watch because th that was the episode I felt the most conflicted with because yeah. we see <laughs> Jeffrey develop real feelings for this it, man. And again, according to this series. According but. to the series. But um, one thing that... Um, is sort of different is that the series sort of depicts that they didn't know each other for that long but by all accounts like the friends who knew tony they say that he knew Dahmer, that he was friendly with Dahmer for over a year oh okay so they spent quite a bit of time together um but ultimately Dahmer, it's, it's almost portrayed like he loved this man yeah and then when he realizes that he might leave him which tony seems like he's very interested in maintaining a relationship with Dahmer, but i think because the way it's depicted is Dahmer felt afraid that he might eventually leave, and that's why he killed him. Um, and then we see Dahmer calling a family member to tell them, like, stop looking for your loved one. That is true. He did call family oh, members. Oh, that's so gross. Okay, episode seven is about, it focuses on Gl the Glenda Cleveland character. It's, it's Nash's called character. Cassandra. It's called Cassandra. Because the Greek prophet that was cursed to tell the truth, but no one would believe her. So the most frustrating thing about her situation is that she called the Milwaukee police repeatedly about throughout the entire series. We see Niecy Nash as this woman 
Like she can smell like rotting flesh. She can hear men screaming for help. She can hear like a saw being used and bones being crushed by, you know, blunt force. And she keeps calling the police and they are, we get one phone call with 911 where they're like, ma'am, you call here so much. We don't know what's an actual emergency. Mm -hmm. So they think she's crying wolf is just like, it is so difficult to like watch. And that is true. And she did get to meet with the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who did come down to Milwaukee to try to raise awareness about this, um, like the uh, shortcomings of the Milwaukee Police Department, pressuring the mayor, um, because there was a lot of outrage within the community, specifically with the black um, citizens. So that was really hard to watch. And it wasn't just her, like many residents of like in real life, because in reality, Glenda Cleveland didn't live in that building, but she did witness a lot of things happening, like men running out of the building, which we do see in the series. We get probably like five or six times we see her looking out of her window and seeing men run out screaming, but neighbors did report him. So this wasn't just one person, like many people reported that they um, saw terrible things. So episode eight, we focus more on the dad. And we also get the court trial where we see... Oh, who's played by Richard Jenkins, yeah. Which was really interesting because we see his character go... up, Like, he kind of sort of goes... He goes back and forth with thinking that maybe he's responsible for why his son turned out this way. Yeah. Or maybe it's his, the mom. But played by Penelope Ann Miller, yep. Oh, another big surprise was that... I didn't realize until, like, episode seven that Lionel Dahmer remarries a woman after Dahmer... Jeffrey Dahmer's mom leaves him. And the actress playing the new wife, Sherry, is Molly Ringwald. Yeah, I didn't realize. I, I was like... I thought it was her, but I didn't. <laughs> but I was like, there's no way she's in this series. But it is her. Anyway, I, I thought like the depiction of the dad and like his emotions revolving around like, my son is this horrible serial killer. They did a good job. Yeah. But listening to the family uh, give those like victim statements was really difficult because those statements were like word for word it also really bothered me the uh sequence where he killed his neighbor the black guy that moved into the building oh yeah i mean just it's so upsetting but um the dad did uh, petition the judge we do get a scene where that previous uh, the the time that Dahmer got locked up previously the dad did write the judge asking him to do something in the series they say like can you get my son help like, he needs psychiatric help. But in reality, the dad wrote the judge saying, like, you need to keep my son locked up. So the dad knew his son was, like, fucked up. And then we also see depictions of people writing, like, there, there was a Jeffrey Dahmer comic book, which is super disturbing. Yes. Um, episode 9, we get more information. Like, we see how the two cops who let that 14-year-old boy go back with Dahmer, they're suspended with pay, but then they ultimately get reinstated. In the series, we see that those two officers um, are given the Officer of the Year Award by the Milwaukee Police Department. That is not true. They did not receive those um, commendations. It is true that Glenda Cleveland received, like, a, what did she get? Like, Citizens. Like, uh, like, Honorary, or Citizen of Merit Award from the mayor. That <laughs> is true. The film also, or the series depicts uh, Cleveland's daughter, Sandra, being arrested for her for like assaulting some kids who were taking pictures in front of their apartment. 
apparently that is not like true. Played by Nisi's actual daughter. Yeah. Um, and then we see that the apartment complex, the Oxford Apartments, is demolished. Uh, uh, and that was done back in like 1992, I believe. It's still, that lot is still vacant. Like nothing was ever built there. Mm -hmm. But we see Nisi Nash's character trying to Get make it memorial. into a memorial for the victims. But that never happened. Episode 10, I think, is probably the worst episode. Because we see Dahmer in jail and he tries to find Christ. And all that is really like flimsy like it's hard to tell if Dahmer really wanted to be saved we see him get baptized then we see another inmate uh Christopher Scarver who ends up killing Dahmer along with another gentleman and in the film he's it's sort of depicted like he's a Christian and he prayed about it and God said that he needs to enact a vengeance but in reality Christopher Christopher Scarver was like highly mentally ill like schizophrenic i mean he was very very ill so i don't know that this person was as uh, articulate and lucid yeah, yeah but it is true that he was that, that this man killed jeffrey dahmer in prison overall um yeah this series is upsetting oh we didn't even talk about evan peters what oh, did you think was, about i him? thought he did a really good job yeah i thought he did a really good job you know it, it is it's so creepy because Evan Peters as Jeffrey Dahmer is appealing. Like, I think he's attractive in a way. And then I think the actual Jeffrey Dahmer was good looking enough that I think it was upsetting that I could see myself seeing someone like him in a bar and like, if they wanted my attention, they could get it. And that's happened to all of us. Like, sure. it's just scary to think that we could be easily lured into Especially as gay men, right? Because we do things so casually without thinking, without alerting anyone. And like, yeah, like just getting yourself, like just, it's just so scary. It's it so is. scary. It is very scary. But also thinking, you know, I, I think I never really paid, delved into Dahmer because of, as a kid, when I was very young, when this stuff was coming out and just the, the, the discomfort about him being gay and his sexuality. Oh, I did. Yes. So, um, this morning, cause you know, I get up much earlier than you, I was watching interviews with him. And I think the one thing that we never really found out and we'll probably never understand is there was a nine year period where Dahmer, so he had killed two people that he, cause he was very forthcoming about what he did, how yeah. he did it. Um, oh, actually, can we pause for one second? Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry, I needed a bathroom break. Uh, <laughs> so, the one thing that the series doesn't really ever mention, and we never really hear Dahmer talk about, some of the interviews and reports that I was that, that I have watched, um, people will talk about his sexuality and sex acts, but we never hear it from his mouth, like what he enjoyed, and the series doesn't explore it. But I think there was a nine-year period between when he killed those first two people the first guy he said he didn't he killed him in a panic like he didn't want the guy to leave the guy was getting upset and he hit him in the head with a dumbbell and then that was you know what it was and the second guy in the series is depicted as he takes him to a hotel because he's no longer allowed at the bathhouses they're partying jeffrey's method of like subduing all of his victims was to give them um, a sedative mm -hmm. which i believe was halcyon 
So in the series, they depict it as Jeffrey drugs, you know, puts the drug in the drink that he would make the victim. And in this case, Jeffrey accidentally drank the drink. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did watch an interview with Jeffrey Dahmer talk specifically about that killing. And he says, he doesn't mention that he thinks he drugged himself. He just says that I had the intention to drug him. And then next thing I knew, I woke up and he was dead. And I could see that he had like broken ribs. So I assume I beat him to death, but I don't remember doing that. <clears throat> so his first two killings are very different from the ones we, you know, the additional 15, nine years later. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm not a healthcare or a mental health professional. This is my armchair psychology, but I believe that something, some things must have happened in that nine year period where he wasn't killing that affected him sexually. Like, because then his killings became very much about owning this body and making zombies and, and making zombies and, and enjoying them. He does say that he enjoyed them sexually after they were dead. So me putting all this together makes me think that he must have had some pretty, uh, he must have had some sexual experiences in that nine year period that maybe were traumatic to him. Like he was embarrassed. He couldn't perform something along those lines that made him think that the only way he could enjoy sex is if he had total control. And again, we'll probably never know because he'd be the one to tell us. Well, mixed with all these things too, is his drinking problem and his what, what's the obsession with the internal organs that has a name? Uh, oh yeah, like yeah. There's one uh, moment where we get a psychologist explaining to Dahmer that the fact that he likes the shiny, like the feel of organs and how shiny they look. There's a name for that. But uh, then you know the doctor's talking about how the, we're hardwired like a wet vagina is supposed to. Uh, you know, stimulate those kind men, of yeah. stimulate men, but it's like, well, for a gay man, how does that work then with what he's doing? And I feel like there's so many other, you know, interesting ways to approach how he became what he was. Yeah. It's, you know, we'll never know. And the series, I think, you know, it obviously takes liberties and fills in the gaps in a way that as a sort of a fictional interpretation of a real life event is very compelling but it, you know, it's just so hard to watch, and well, it's like it's so hard to watch all these young men. It's, you know, I don't know. Oh, the last thing is that, um, you know, I, of course, it begs the question, like, why were all of his victims black? And there is um, one of the law enforcement agents, like the detectives, uh, Michael Beach's character. Michael Beach's character is very angry and is saying, like, he wants answers. Like, why were like why were you selecting black men but Dahmer insists that it wasn't racially motivated it wasn't a sexual preference he was just really going for the best looking person he could find who would want to come home with him yeah and I think that I believe that I think that I don't know that Dahmer didn't have a lot of money so he yeah. lived in an area that you know rent was really cheap which is obviously a less desirable area which obviously means there are people of color living there mm-hmm and then he was frequenting gay bars and I was watching another documentary um, with people who like lived in the area, like one of the bartenders at the bar Dahmer would frequent. And it, 
these were not like, you know, Milwaukee in the 90s didn't have like gay bars specifically for black men. There, <laughs> so it was just that I think he probably, you know, the sad reality is that as a gay black man of a particular age, I can definitely speak to the fact that like people weren't as, there was definitely a stigma around like finding yourself attracted to black men. And a lot of, you know, a lot of gay white men just weren't into that. Not in public. Not in public. So I could see someone like a Jeffrey Dahmer who was like a, an attractive enough guy who was, because there is a scene where three black guys who he's talking to sort of say to him, like, you know, you, you bought us drinks before and you've never really pulled the trigger. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? I think that he probably just realized very quickly, like I think a lot of gay white men realize is that when they sort of, I mean, because we do have this problem of gay white men fetishizing other ethnicities, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Different races. And I think some of them have learned that their odds are better because in the gay community, I guess white men are like at the top of the totem pole. And if you're part of a group that doesn't get a lot of attention, you probably would be more prone to like reciprocate this person's like intention. So I don't think that it's like, I, I think there is some awareness of like, oh, my odds are good that if I approach you, you, you know, like as this gay white guy to this black guy that you'll probably be interested. Mm -hmm. I think there is an awareness. And I think he did know that, but I don't know that he was like, I, I don't think these were hate crimes by any means. I think it's what he could get his hands on. I, I think it was simply what he could get his but, hands but, on. But yes, there, there are other intersecting elements that uh, allowed him to select from a certain demographic. Where right? the racial component is important is how the police didn't give a shit. Right. Because these were gay black men or gay men of color. And for the people who did try to complain or get help, you know, aside from the Laotian boy who were black, the police just didn't take them seriously. On top of already being uncomfortable with the gay shit, it's like they don't give a fuck about poor and black I, people. And I think, I think that was very clear. I think Dahmer had an awareness that the cops were uncomfortable with the gay things because he used, yes. he would use those details when in, in close calls to dissuade them. Yeah, that's important related to this series is that it depicts Dahmer as sort of learning very quickly that people don't want to talk about gay stuff. Yeah. So if he wants to get out of a situation, he can just bring up gay stuff and then people will leave him alone. Yeah. And yeah, so he, he was aware. And then a very interesting scene is when the lawyer, Dahmer's lawyer is saying, we need to plead insanity. Like that's the only way you're not going to spend the rest of your life in prison. You can spend the rest of your life in like a mental hospital, which is better. And Dahmer keeps saying, I'm not insane. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't hear voices. I wasn't delusional. Like, and they're trying to say to him, like, but you said that you would black out when you would kill. And he's like, no, I was blacked out because I was drunk, but I knew what I was doing. It's just very eerie. And then again, having since watched a bunch of interviews with him, he seems extremely lucid and articulate yes. and aware. Well, and that's what makes it scarier. You know, I, I, another thing about, uh, luring these young black men is he would use money he would say he wanted to pay them for photographs yeah and you know like i think that was specific, like he knew that his chances were better 
there as well. Yeah. It's very upsetting. I don't want to say I'd recommend it, but I do think the series is well done. Um, yes. And I think, you know, I, I also kind of wish... One thing I didn't love about the series, and it's not that I want to see every killing or every... And the same thing happened with, like, the Night Stalker one. And it, for some... You know, it's almost like you want every victim to get, um, like, to be honored. But it's like you can't because what happened to them is not... The juxtaposition of, like, wanting to remember a victim with what happened to them is such a conflicting um, mindset that it's just, it's just so awkward. Mm -hmm. and, and then we only focus on, you know, a handful of them. So in, in that way, it feels incomplete, but then it's like, I don't want to see all these men get killed either. No, and I almost want like a, a, a broader picture of the gay community in Milwaukee at this point too would have been nice. Like, oh, got, like that one docu-series we watched o about... OJ... No, the one we watched about the guy over in England, um, Jack... The uh, Yorkshire Ripper? Yes, and remember how that one focused on the community. Yes. Yes. Because, um, you know, you're thinking... Uh, specifically in the black community, like with AIDS and crack that, you know, you got these twin epidemics and then fucking Jeffrey Dahmer. I like, what were people thinking? It, it just unreal to me. Like our level of being able to transmit information and communicate is obviously so much more enhanced now, but what were people talking? It's kind of, you know, think about like monkeypox, which is uh, so much on, the, on the wane and how as a community, like that's all we could talk about for a, a certain amount of time and going out and, like, was nobody talking to each other? Did nobody have any care for one another about, like, there's... It, oh, it, it brings to mind a couple of years ago uh, in Toronto, which I go to for the film festival in the gay village, there was one year where there, it was very eerie. There were all of these pictures of gay men missing, like, that were stapled everywhere. And it comes to find somebody was killing these people. But I... I yeah. What, well, what I think what you said... About? I think what you said already is the answer to that question, which is, like... Our level of uh, being able to communicate more easily today is ex is like exponentially greater than it was in the 90s. I remember going to the gay bars in the 90s and it was a lot of whispers about like, oh, that guy, he has AIDS. Be yes, careful. Yes, I Be careful. That. He has like that was when I was at the gay bars in the 90s. That was like the, the kind of thing everyone was on high alert about. Yeah. Or, or whispering about like, oh, that person will pay you for sex or... But yeah, it was a lot of whispers. And I think if you're not in that circle or you're new to the area, that was always my big fear is like, because I was in Las Vegas and it's so transient, it's like there's no sort of tribal knowledge because everyone who's in this bar right now doesn't even live here. And tribal knowledge is a blessing and a curse because the gay bar scene in Minneapolis where when I was growing up was very clicky. Well, and then I didn't join that community until much later, uh, obviously, because I didn't grow up in Minnesota, but I remember once I did start going out to the gay bars, yeah, the way people would talk about everyone and because oh, yeah. it is a more uh, closed off community. Um, but then, yeah, there are pluses and minuses. Like, you know, people learn very quickly who to be aware of and who has this history. But yeah, I have the same questions. Like, what were people thinking? But then again, information didn't travel. And it then you think today, like with monkeypox, a lot of how many of us got vaccinated wasn't through, you know, LA County giving us information. It was like on these apps, like people would tell, you know, people told me, well, the first you sent me a link saying, Oh, I just read that you can sign up for the shot. Mm -hmm. But then 
Um, the- I share that information with a lot of people. And then one of the first places to give monkeypox shots... Were the bathhouses. Well, no, was right after Pride, there was a Pride event where someone was tested positive for monkeypox. And the city sent everyone to that clinic right next to our house. So then several people messaged me like like on the apps who were there because they're close by. And they were saying that they were getting the shots. So that's how a lot of us knew. Mm-hmm. And then like sharing information like, hey, I just went and got my second shot. And they're telling me that you don't have to have this. Yes, and, yes. Right? So as a community, we were all sort of explaining to each other like this is how you get what you need well monkeypox grinder was what first alerted me i was in france uh, at the Cannes film festival and some message came up on grinder about i was like it's you know it was in french and then that prompted me to look up what they were were talking about and our that's when i first messaged you about it and then i was talking to people at the, the festival about it, and everybody's like monkeypox what an odd terrible name ha 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 and then several months later look what happened but even like prep years ago, like that sort of started with everyone sort of talking to each other mm-hmm. because, you know, the medical community, because the medical community, the, medical community, the, the, the city, the state, the government, they're not trying to get or help anyone in that way. Right. Like who cares about gay guys who are do engaging in risky behavior. And so we had to take care of ourselves. So I could see another. Oh yeah. I had some demeaning doctor tell me like, back when we were first starting because you and I had different doctors and we were trying to get prep and they're like, why if you don't have HIV? I'm like, because it's prophylaxis. And uh, like I had to convince the doctor to prescribe that to me initially. And somebody, one this one white dude saying like, well, you know, abstinence is the only 100% way to stay HIV. <laughs> well, one doctor was like, oh, are you a slut? And I'm like, <laughs> what? Are you talking about, what's his name, Ruben? Uh... The, no, that was the nurse. Oh, oh, oh. no, no, it, it was a doctor, and it was a gay doctor who another doctor we know recommended. Oh, yes, that guy, uh huh. And he was, and I thought, oh, we know a gay doctor who works in the same network as we have insurance for, and he recommended another gay doctor. And I went to him, and he was so like judgmental, and I'm just like, this is outrageous, like, <laughs> this is outrageous, anyway. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, the Dahmer series, but I, 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 I was very affected by it. Yes, it was. Uh... Well, I guess moving on to an appropriate topic. So there are entries in the obituary section, unfortunately. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Louise Fletcher passed. Yeah. You're very familiar with her. Oh, yes. One Flew Over the Coop. Nurse Ratchet, of course. You made a list of films you enjoy her in. Yeah, Do you course. want to go through them? Sure. Well, right. she plays Sigourney's mother-in-law in A Map of the World from 1999. Yeah. I highly recommend that film. Uh, she's also in Cruel Intentions. Okay. If you remember her in that. She's in one of my favorite Lifetime movies ever, uh, In a Child's Name, starring Valerie Bertinelli, which you know we I might do as a secret film sometime. Um, a couple months ago, I watched for the first time a film called Strange Behavior, also known as Dead Kids, uh, which Michael Laughlin director. It's a ozploitation film, technically, and Bill Condon wrote it. Um, she's also in Robert Altman's Thieves Like Us and... Uh, Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, which co-stars Karen Black. <clears throat> Next, or or lastly, um, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race queen named Cherry Valentine, whose real name is George Ward, he passed away. He was only 28 years old. Yeah. Um, 
his the cause of death is not known but i do remember him he was on season or series two of uk drag race yeah he seemed really sweet and i remember watching uh like a like a you know one of those like highlights mm -hmm. on youtube about him and he was a nurse yes and he <clears throat> was he did a lot of work when the covid vaccine rollout in the uk started like he was in the trenches doing that so i, I thought that was just really commendable hearing him talk about it and how he just wanted to help people and so i hope his death was not you know it's just unfortunate yeah <clears throat> okay so oh there was a for a product of project of interest oh you, there's a project of interest yeah. what is it it's called sitting in bars with cake oh that's well you know i like cake um which the plot sounds so ridiculous read the plot it's based on a true story it follows a quiet young woman who's unlucky in love and discovers an unlikely guy magnet when she bakes a cake for her best friend's birthday and brings it to a bar only to be swarmed by men that sounds so kind of dumb to me but uh bet midler is starring in it which is why i thought it was interesting. oh okay Obviously not the cake maker. Okay, the secret film today uh, is one that I've been talking about wanting to watch for a long time. Yes. And then once we started it, I realized it was the wrong movie. <laughs> so what? our secret movie is Twister, the 1996 disaster film directed by Jan DeBont. Jan DeBont. Jan DeBont. Mm -hmm. So that's a man? Yes, okay. he's a very notable cinematographer. He shot the film Roar. Roar. Oh, with uh, Melanie Griffith? And Tippy, yeah. Okay, I recommend Roar. The, the, so as we started watching it, I realized that I've been saying I want to watch Twister for how long? Many, a long time. It's been a long time. And then when we started it, I realized that the movie I really was thinking of was Dante's Peak with Pierce Brosnan. Oh my God. <laughs> which is so funny. Yes. Which is so funny because uh, Linda Hamilton's hair is not too far away from Helen Hunt in this. So I confused tornadoes with volcanoes and I thought, and I knew I picked the wrong movie because when we started it and it, it's clear Bill Paxton is the star. Yeah. I asked you, where's Pierce Brosnan? I'm like, he's not in this. And you're like, he's not in this movie. Well, isn't there a disaster movie with Pierce Brosnan? Dante's, Dante's Peak. Peak yeah. It's Dante's Peak I wanted to watch. Oh. So all this time I've been saying Twister, I really wanted to watch Dante's Peak. <laughs> I feel like we... Well, I know we watched Volcano with Anne Hayes. <sighs> but anyway, we watched Twister. Uh, so the director, Jan DeBont, is notable. And this screenplay is by Michael Crichton, right? So uh, he's a big deal, too. And produced by Steven Spielberg, among other people. Yeah. This movie was a big deal. It was a bigger budget movie that made a ton of money. It did get a lot of attention, like critical acclaim for the CGI. And I will say, for a 1996 film... I thought all of the CGI holds up except one moment where there's like a car explosion. That looked really fake. There are a couple things where things floating through like a tree at one point in a boat that look real CGI. But. Uh, I think the movie looks good because a lot of it is practical. Like yeah. So so I so I do think it's impressive. It's you not know, like Jurassic Park level. Like it doesn't hold up like that. But you know, I th I want to say this is the third Yann de Bont film that you've chosen for a secret. What film. are the other ones? The Speed and Speed Two Cruise Control. Oh, he did both of those. Yeah, this is the film he did between those. Well, unfortunately, I thought this movie was kind Con of 
It's caca. It's not good. It's super... Rep- I mean, the basic story is so basic. So Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt play like... Storm chasers. Storm chasers who used to be in a relationship, but then they broke up. And now Bill Paxton is with some new lady. Jamie Gertz. We'll talk about her. Okay. And then they... Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt reunite while there's a storm. Like, they happen to meet. Or they, they plan to, like, meet. He, he wants... He finds her because she needs to sign the divorce papers. That's right. Sorry. And while they're doing that, a major storm comes. And Helen's like, oh, well, I don't have time for this because... You know that project you and I were working on? The Dorothy, like... Thing Dorothy, I completed it. So Dorothy is like supposed to be this technology with these little like tracker balls that the tornado will suck up, and they can get a lot of really helpful information. And the way they explain it is so underwhelming because they say currently with the technology we have, the tornado warnings can only give us like three minutes of delay. But with this new technology we've developed, it'll give us fifteen minutes, which. Yes, in an emergency like that, it is significant, but I just feel like the way it's explained seems so like, okay. Well, and then opening on uh, Helen Hunt's dad getting sucked up into the air when she's a child, she she's personally... Well, we need to talk about this. that. So, um, the story's very basic. They have four of these Dorothy machines, and the film gets going right away. Like, yeah. It starts with a tornado, and then very quickly there's another tornado, <laughs> and then this one tornado, they make it's made like a creature feature. Yeah. Where like... The way that Helen Hunt's character is acting is like this tornado is after her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, but they do like the machine like attempt number one fails, mm-hmm. attempt number two fails, attempt number three. And fails. each time they learn like it's not heavy enough, or we need to uh, put aluminum propellers on the sensors, which look a lot like our Christmas ornaments. And- so number four is when this uh, it's their last chance, and they figured out how to do it, and they get the technology up into the tornado. They get the information they want. All's well that ends well. And and those two end up... Getting back together. Yeah. I'm just going to go through my notes. The film opens in 1969 with Helen Hunt as a little girl. And then very much Wizard of Oz style, this tornado comes and like sucks the dad up out of the basement and he dies. So then we flash forward to present day 1990 whatever. And we see that Helen Hunt, like her mission in life is to like learn about tornadoes. And she is very passionate about it. Okay. Bill Paxton is now in a relationship with Jamie Gertz. That character bothered me so much. She's so annoying. Oh, she's so annoying. I think, I don't know why. I mean, I guess in these blockbuster, like, natural disaster films, I guess you need, like, I don't understand the formula. The resident dum-dum? Yeah, because she's not comedic relief. She's just kind of in the way and annoying. Well, because people constantly have to explain things to her, i.e. us. Oh, maybe that's her function. But the questions she asks are just so like, ugh. And then she's acting like she's too prim and proper to be chasing tornadoes. Yes. Bitch, I don't think anyone... Like, this is not a scenario any of us should be in. So I just hated that she's acting like she's too good to be in this tornado. Like, any of us would be like, yeah, let me go chase this tornado. Um... You can't tell me Helen Hunt and J- J- Jodie Foster aren't the same person. <laughs> they, they, they certainly they are. They look very similar to me. They Not do. unlike uh, Jennifer Connelly and... Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara. No, uh, <laughs> the one who, you know, who really looks like Helen Hunt is Lily Sobieski. Um, Lily so- Lila so- Sobieski? Lily Sobieski from Never Been Kissed. Oh. In that Joan of Arc movie. 
Okay. And uh, Joyride with Paul Walker. Okay. She doesn't really act anymore, but that was the joke always that she looked like Hillary. Oh, I'd have to look them up. Anyway, there's a scene where Jamie confronts Helen saying like, I know you still love Bill. That's why you wanted him here, but you know, don't even think about it. And it's like, lady. And then the waitress is serving them and the waitress looks at them like, this is so stupid. And then several clicks <laughs> later, and it's then, over and I don't even feel bad. Well, we can get to that. But we find out that Jamie's character is a reproductive therapist and we hear her on the phone talking to like a couple of patients. That was so stupid. Yep, it's real dumb. Okay, the only thing I remember from this movie, because uh, I think I, I'm sure it was a big deal in 1990, whatever. So Six. I remember that. Um, I remember the scene with the cows flying in the air. We have cows. Yeah. And they keep, they keep, and uh, we have debris. We have debris. Okay. It's a side wander. Like maybe like halfway through the movie, because they're running around wherever they are, Kansas, or I don't know where they're supposed to Oklahoma. be. Oklahoma. And they stop at Helen's mom's house to like get provisions and clean up like they take showers and played by lois smith because helen hunt's character has a big team including philip seymour hoffman who we can talk about oh my god and alan rock and todd field the director of tar yeah there are a lot of people on her team but they all show up including bill paxton and jamie gertz to helen's mom's house and she's like she's not expecting them no nope. and they all show up and she has like a feast ready for them of steak which looks really good actually but um Someone asked her, like, where did you get all this beef from? Because she's serving them, like, big cuts of steak. And then the mom goes, did you see my cows outside? And the character says, no. And she goes, well, there you go. I thought that was funny. That is so weird. I read that, <laughs> and I read that Jan de Bont is a vegetarian, so this was a hard scene for him to film. Oh, God. But it's so that Even the script has to address, like, where did all this beef come from? We didn't even need that. She could have made them sandwiches like Cloris Leachman. Yeah, we didn't like, need all I that. Need, yeah, or Jeff Dahmer. <laughs> Or, oh, God. Oh, we didn't talk about that. The sandwiches. Talk about it now. Can we go? Hey, everyone. We need to uh, go back to Dahmer. There's a scene in the series where... Because Nisi Nash keeps trying to get Dahmer, like, evicted because his house stinks. And he does. The building manager evicts Dahmer. So then Dahmer's upset and he goes to see Nisi Nash's character and he brings her a sandwich. And it is a really creepy scene. Yes. Because he wants to come inside her house. And of course we're like, no! Yeah. And he's like, what, are you scared of me? And she's like, I'm not scared of you, sit down. And they start talking and he gives her a sandwich. And he's like, I, br I made you a sandwich. And it looks like the driest, it's just white bread with like unseasoned meat that looks like pulled pork, mm -hmm. but like no seasoning on it. Yep. And not even like mayo. And both of us are screaming like, I know she's not going to eat this sandwich because he keeps telling her, I want you to eat it. I want to watch you eat it. And finally, she says what I would have said. Like, <laughs> um, you think I'm going to eat a sandwich from someone's house that smells like a fucking dead raccoon is living in there? She says a raccoon's ass, I think. She's like, under no circumstances am I eating this sandwich. I thought that was such a good scene. But that is um, an amalgamation of um, that character plus the other neighbor who claimed that Dahmer would make sandwiches for the building. Oh my God. Can you imagine? So that means people were eating people. Well, we don't know. I mean, was he serving human flesh? Oh my God. You know he was. He's trying to get rid of it, I bet. Oh, <clears throat> terrible. But anyway, getting back to Twister, 
there's a scene where Jamie Gertz's character is they're they're talking about the tornado levels like F1, F2, F3, and she's acting like what is that? So they're explaining it. But then they get to F4 and then she's like, "Well, is there an F5?" And they all look at her like, "Don't you ever speak of the yeah, F5?" Like, the, That's the, the finger yeah. of God. Oh, <laughs> that was so corny. This is sick. What did, what was my what did I say? Cuz there's the scene at the diner where she's, you know, make we have to know that she's getting lemonade for Bill Paxton that Lemonade to go. Lemonade to go. But it's like, oh my God, this is showing that she's like so mercilessly unimportant. Then another thing we noticed is everyone in this movie is in a hurry, which makes sense. I mean, they're chasing tornadoes, but it feels chaotic. Like every scene, everyone's like rushing. Every scene where they're like packing up to run off to some other thing they've heard about, other storm brewing they heard about is so annoying. I thought all the jargon they use for like storm chasing was kind of silly because they're just throwing out these terms. But they, it's like not super scientific. It's just like, check the Doppler. Oh, the it, it's a jumper. It's a sidewinder. Yeah. It's a sister. Like, what are you talking about? It's so basic. We got sisters. Okay. Okay. I thought Helen Hunt's character her motivation is kind of annoying because then she's acting like the tornado hunted her father. And then went for her mom. And then went for her mom because then the tornado goes to the town the mom is in. And then she's acting like now the tornado's chasing her. I don't know why they wanted to make her seem crazy. So Jamie Gert's character finds out that Bill is still in love with Helen mm -hmm. because Bill and Helen are talking outside of like their truck and the CB radio for some reason is on and picking up their transmission mm -hmm. and then Jamie hears it and that's when she decides to break up with him. I thought that was a dumb scene. That was super... What about the scene where everybody's different styles of musical tastes are sampled? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Although I did, uh, you know, not, I didn't, cause I haven't seen this, I think since it was in theaters in 1996 from start to finish and uh, I didn't know what Child in Time was by Deep Purple but that was a nice poor, poor Philip Seymour Hoffman he's in this movie as part of Helen Hunt's team and he is trying really hard to do something with this role he is and it's and not it working is not working at all but you get a whole bunch of recognized Sean Whalen from People Under the Stairs uh, Jeremy Davies who we just saw be, watched be that terrible alcoholic dad in uh, The Black Phone mm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Carrie Elwes. That's right. My friend Carrie Elwes is in it. Kind of like, he's like, he is also a storm chaser, but he's like big time. Like he has all the money, all the technology. And of course, they're going to let the underdog save the day, which is another plot point I don't understand. Like they're not, the way this, the, the, the way this movie is constructed like a creature feature, it, it's almost like they're not going to resolve tornadoes. Like tornadoes aren't going anywhere. It's just that they have somehow... The story itself is so unsatisfying. It's so stupid because I'm, I'm also... Because all of the problems they're having... Why can't the sensor just be on the ground? Why do they have to be in this bin? That was also my question. Like, Because it's like the, the bin has to... Dorothy has to remain upright to be sucked straight up into the vortex or whatever. And it's like, well, why? Why can't you shoot a cannon with these sensors into the storm? Like, I, I don't know. I just feel like there were other... I, I needed them to explain. I mean, I guess the center of a tornado acts like a vacuum because anything that the tornado hits, it gets like flung, right? It like spins around and flies off. But if it can get into the center of it, it will stay in the middle. Yeah, but... And, that, and then it creates that cyclone. So I guess that makes sense. But I also feel like that tornado is so strong that if it's on the ground, it's just going to rip that thing apart. Well, yeah, but isn't anything on the ground has a potential of going up into the cyclone? Sure. I, I, I think that whole thing was silly. Um... One scene I thought looked really silly is 
there's like a, a, a big rig truck that's sucked up by the tornado and then it's like coming towards Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt's truck. And the way that truck comes toward them in slow motion is so ridiculous. Yes. And then it hits their truck and it barely taps it. Mm-hmm. Like th- that truck would have been traveling at like hundreds of miles. And then an it hour. blows up and they have to drive through the flames. Yeah. Then there's a scene where they're all high. They go hide in a barn and the barn is filled with like a lot of sharp tools. And that's when the wind is making everything like fly around. The, picket, the pickets from the picket fence. Yeah. Are but they're like, who are these people? Farmers, you dumb fucks. Like the. I think this was corny. I don't even, you know, like what would have been a better story? I think natural disaster films can be tricky because it, like with San Andreas or like a volcano or something, it's just like, well, we know that this can happen again and there's nothing you can do to stop it. So really it's about the people surviving. So I feel like natural disaster films need to have a, a like a survival component to it. Well, you know. And this didn't. It was just like, it was like the same scene four times. Like we're running from the tornado, then we're chasing it, then we're trying to put our little machine in there and it fails. And we're going to do it three times until the fourth time is the charm. It was just hard to sit through. It is hard to sit through. And uh, they're almost always corny, natural disaster films, because you're stuck to such a specific thing. But, you know, even the better one, like one of my favorites of all time is the original Poseidon Adventure. Or what's the one with the high rise with uh, the towering inferno? The towering inferno. I recall enjoying that. Yeah, it's enjoyable, but it's just like, oh, they're always so over the top, but with large ensemble casts. Anyway, well, uh, I do what... remember uh, one because I grew up in northern Minnesota, and we would have tornado season. And I remember my sister, God, would have probably been like eight, and we had the, we did have this on VHS, and there was a I don't know why my mother was on the phone, but she was, so she was distracted. And like the tornado alarm was going off and uh, I put this VHS on and made my sister watch it. And of course, in the beginning, she starts screaming. Oh, Oh. the best line of the movie is the very end where Helen Hunt says, I think we've seen enough. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that's all I have to say about Twister. I wouldn't recommend it. No. It, is, we, it is on HBO, so I mean, you can stream it there. But I, there was nothing about this movie I found fun, interesting. Uh, yeah. What do we have going on this week? Oh, God. Smile and the new David O. Russell and uh, The Inspection. Oh, okay. Are you reading anything? I'm still reading The 20-Year Death, which is basically like three books in one. Okay. Anything else? Uh, no. All right. Ta-ta.